Welcome to the State the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Doomberg. Doomberg, welcome to the show. Jim, Paul, it's great to be here. It's a real honor. Uh, big fans of your show and looking forward to a great discussion. Wow, well, thank you. It's great to hear that. And uh, we're, we're big fans of... Uh, your, I think I've already too. been hypnotized by your chicken eyes. I may need to look away from the screen for a second. <laughs> well, this is the key element of the brand. You know, you, you can joke, but the um, we've actually studied this and the eyes are core to the brand. And, and if you're interested, we could tell the story of how we discovered that. Uh, yeah, yeah. We'd love to hear it. We'd love to hear it. Maybe later, maybe later. Well, I, sorry, sorry, I thought you were going to jump into the first question. No, 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 go, go for it, go for it. Uh, so we, um, we created um, a series of mugs as sort of self-funded marketing. And we had three mugs on offer and we, we, we wrote up some really fantastic copy for it. And um, we put the piece out over the, the Christmas holidays because that's kind of a, kind of a dead period for, for blogging anyway. And uh, the mugs had three different versions of the chicken um, in one mug, the um, Clockett mug, the chicken is walking away uh, and it's meant to be sort of a bit angry. Um, in another mug that we call the Totally Agree mug, the chicken is very small. Uh, and then there's just sort of a classic Doomberg mug where the, the two O's in the word Doomberg are in fact the chicken's eyes and the, the, the eyes are very pronounced in that mug. And even though that chicken mug was the third one in the copy, it outsold the other two by a factor of three to one, uh, which was Mark a confirmation to us that people just love those eyes. So um, it's just key part of the brand. And uh, we, we, we did a little merchandising experiment to uh, confirm it. And that's actually why we never mess with the Doomberg guys anytime we do like a Photoshop or, um, or embed the chicken on a chart. So why do you use the chicken in the first place? It's a great question. Um, we started Doomberg 11 months ago, and I should say um, we... we finally opened our paywall um, earlier this week, and this is the first, pod, first podcast we've been on since uh, since launching Paid, and so re- really extra thrilled to be here today. Um, we launched Doomberg 11 months ago from a standing start with um, zero followers on Twitter and zero email subscribers on Substack. Um, it's truly the work of my life. It's something that uh, I was always meant to do, and I have a very strong team um, supporting the effort. And we, um, you know, a, a, as professional marketers and consultants in our in our real life, um, one of the things we know is that you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. And uh, we designed the Doomberg chicken with um, our ideal clients in mind. And uh, and so the, the the colors of the chicken sort of um, pay homage to the, the colors on the Bloomberg keyboard, which many people on Wall Street um, have a fond affection for. And um, the chicken in the eyes, and uh, it just kind of stands out. And that's why we've kept ourselves in character too. Like we've, as We've created um, animated gifts for when we're on podcast appearances, and uh, we've decided to keep the green chicken. It's a really great brand, and um, as the Twitter account has grown, I think we've crossed um, 67,000 followers this morning on Twitter. Um, we're getting you know, a million impressions a day, and it, it, it means that one million times during the day, um, the green chicken in those eyes are put in front of somebody. <laughs> and um, and it just, it's just so much easier to remember than... Um, than, you know, a handsome face uh, like Paul has, you know, nothing against <laughs> Paul's face, but, um, you know, square jawed guys like Paul are, you know, pretty common on Twitter, whereas the green chicken is pretty unique. And, and the first rule of branding is 
Uh, you can't be remembered if you don't stand out. Soft-faced panda babies are also quite good, though, I find. Yes, indeed. <laughs> that's that's a great reason for having... Yeah, I have to rethink our... Perhaps rethink our marketing there, Tim. We're, we're learning from... You're, a, too, you're too macho, Paul. You're too macho. <laughs> so, there's, a song, there's a song in there somewhere. Yeah, so your expertise is energy, and obviously energy prices have been going through the roof, certainly in Europe. What do you attribute to that too is that just a general bout of inflation because money's been printed clearly it's a more nuanced argument or new more nuanced issue than that but that's part of it i would i would guess so yeah maybe just as a bit as a bit of background we we are a team of um former executives from the commodity sector who have created their own consulting firm and then doomberg is our anonymous publishing arm so you're correct in the sense that we have pretty deep industrial experience in the energy sector on our team. And um, I myself am a former professionally trained scientist. Well, I'm still a professionally trained scientist. I'm just not a acting scientist anymore. Uh, so we have a pretty good understanding of energy and the sort of molecular flows in the economy. And um, we, we have a particularly, uh, um, some in, the, in Europe would say perhaps controversial views as to the origins of the energy crisis in Europe. But ultimately, um, we have been writing about and predicting much of this for some time because ultimately the laws of physics um, will not be denied. And and at issue is the uh, desire for humanity to wean itself off of fossil fuels. And um, you have to do that in a way that is consistent with the laws of physics. And you have to do that in a way we believe that um, optimizes the standard of living that we can spread across the globe to as many humans as possible. And it's just undeniable that today um, 85% of our energy comes from fossil fuels and um, creating new new sources of energy, i.e. renewables like solar and wind, require substantial upfront investment of energy. And, and those um, energy sources have some significant drawbacks, um, most obviously that they are intermittent um, in how they produce energy. And so uh, we believe that the energy crisis in Europe um, spawns from a uh, the unwise attack on the production of natural gas and the seriously unwise um, throttling of nuclear power, especially in Germany, which had the quite predictable effect of increasing the region's reliance on natural gas from uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia, which then handed him all of the geopolitical cards that he needed to think that he could get away with uh, invading Ukraine. And we see today even the hesitancy to um, impose uh, restrictions or um, sanctions on Russia's energy. You know, if we hadn't handed him these cards, um, he would not have been able to play them. Now, whether he still wins the pot uh, in the in the poker game that he put himself in remains to be seen. Um, but we we highly doubt that he would have been so bold um, as he has been if he, if we hadn't um, foolishly handed over the uh, the keys to our energy car. Uh, and, I was just going to say the, the, keys, it, you know? the, the keys to the kingdom. Indeed. And um, look, there's a there's a path function order here that matters. And, um, you know, we've publicly put out a, a couple of pieces uh, that would, um, you know, uh, characterize what our energy policy would be. It's one thing to critique, um, but if you're going to critique, you should at least propose an alternative. Um, our energy policy, and, and by the way, it's nice to see um, Boris Johnson 
taking up a big part of that. Um, we believe that you, you can't wean yourself off of fossil fuels to any large extent without a concurrent build-out of nuclear power. It's just impossible. Um, we should be actively uh, developing natural gas and replacing coal-fired power plants with natural gas to the extent that we can. Um, we should be building out renewables alongside the deployment of nuclear power um, because nuclear power is necessary for um, baseload power and, and so is coal and natural gas. And then um, on the transportation side of things, we're big proponents of plug-in hybrid vehicles because um, full battery electric vehicles don't displace all that much fossil fuels per pound of battery. Whereas if you spread those large batteries across 10 vehicles, you can displace far more fossil fuels than driving around in a sort of vanity electric vehicle like a Mercedes or a Tesla. And so um, if you do all of those things, then you can begin to systematically wean yourself off of fossil fuels, minimize your carbon emissions while still providing a reasonable standard of living for as many people as possible. You mentioned Boris Johnson. What would, what would you say to those people who say that he's basically being controlled by a Svengali type mad wife and the green crap policies he's advocating, he has, he has no electoral mandate for whatsoever. In other words, nobody voted for this crap. Um, I would hesitate to get involved in um, domestic British politics, but I would say that um, one of the consistent themes of our writing is that we are led by unserious people without sufficient training in the subject matters that, that matter mm. the most. Mm. And it's not just Boris Johnson. I mean, um, our policy, we wrote a piece early on uh, called America's Energy Strategy is Bonkers. Um, just here in the U.S., you know, we, we are... Um, Do Americans use the word bonkers? It's a great word. It is. Uh, well, um, I, I, I don't want to give up too much of my identity, but uh, <laughs> I, 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 let's just say I, I currently live in America, but I'm a, I'm, I'm a person of you're, the globe. And, you're, um, you're, you've got ang Anglophile tendencies then. This is, uh, perhaps. And... Yeah. Um, and I, I love the word bonkers. It's one of my favorite words. Uh, it's it's like quintessential. It, it, it captures <laughs> the essence of what you're trying to say. Like there's no doubt about what your opinion is. Yeah. If you use that word. But here in the U.S., for example, you know we are uh, doing the same thing. We are um, stunting the growth of domestic natural gas while simultaneously promising to bail out Europe and wondering why the price of natural gas here has uh, tripled from the lows of last year. Now it's nowhere near what it is in Europe, but um, it's the same issues over here. And look at I, we once wrote a piece making fun of Boris Johnson. Um, I believe it was called Coking Coal Has a Branding Problem because uh, Boris Johnson was being eviscerated by the climate editor for the BBC about not stopping a new coal mine. Um, and neither of them seemed to know that this was not a thermal coal mine that is, you know, is burned to produce power. But in fact, it's a coking coal mine that is used to make steel and you can't make windmills without steel. And so nice. um, oh it's just, but you know, when you observe these things and we come from that industry, you know, those types of industries and we've done work in the mining sector back to this point about plug-in hybrids versus full battery electrics, like the amount of fossil fuels that goes into producing a battery is enormous. And if, if you're going to spend all of that energy, you best want to get a return on that energy. So one of the models that we've written about and that, you know, obviously, many people who think about energy are, are are using or trying to get politicians to understand is everyone is familiar with the uh, payback period in a financial investment. So time t equals zero, you put out a million dollars to buy some capital, and then you generate $200,000 a year in profit, and you have a, a five-year payback period. That exact same analysis can be done for energy. So how much energy do we need to put out up front to make a solar panel? And then how long, under good operating conditions, 
will it take that solar panel to produce more than the energy that it took to create it? And, um, for example, these are political numbers, of course, because once the government starts handing out money, um, people like to bend the numbers in their favor. But most um, scientists in the field would agree that the payback period on a solar panel is somewhere between four to five years. Well, that's what you have to pay. And so um, the price elasticity demand for energy is high. And if you're going to box out other uses for energy, like, oh, I don't know, making fertilizer or growing food or making gasoline to propel your car, um, you have to account for that when you consider the market penetration potential of solar technology, for example. It's literally impossible that we could offset all of our energy use by 2030 when you have a five-year payback period. Um, And so once you start thinking about energy flows in the same way that financial investors would think about financial flows, suddenly the true nature of the problem and the path functions available to us become apparent and we have long argued that the, the surest way to kill the renewable green ESG movement is to try to do it too quickly and to kill nuclear power in parallel because ultimately you are starving people of energy. Energy is life and people want to live. And um, one of our favorite phrases is on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. And uh, we're seeing riots overnight in Peru uh, as a consequence of food inflation. And so these, this is all just playing out exactly as physics would dictate. And um, I'll leave you, uh, I'll close this answer with one final phrase of ours, which we coined and and has become a little bit popular on Twitter, which is um, in the battle between physics and platitudes, uh, physics is undefeated. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, that's a similar one that Margaret Thatcher said, a uh, previous British prime minister, when she said that you can't buck the markets, the markets will always buck you. But we've, on another scale of that, we've seen so much money printing and distortion of the um, use of money uh, by the government so that at some point that's going to come into play which hopefully we can talk about a bit later when when we talk about alternatives to money or what you think money is but I just want to ask a question about the natural gas production from the US and the situation um, in Ukraine from my understanding the obviously the eastern parts of Europe that were being served by Russia and the pipelines of natural gas that, that were going to the previous Russian satellite states that have now become part of NATO. I thought the American policy was to try and undermine that by a making them having them part of NATO, but also by transporting liquefied natural gas to reduce the monopoly that Russia had. And that might have been why Russia felt so threatened. And I'm not saying anything about what's right and wrong here. I'm just trying to look at it objectively. And that's why they felt threatened and, and had to invade Ukraine, um, because potentially it was that one last very important um, country that if it went over to NATO, they would be, be extremely vulnerable. So in order to defend themselves, they went into attack mode. But it's the key to this is energy and, and access to the West. So I, I agree with you that the key to this is energy, and I would argue that um, the manner in which you just described the motivations is precisely the opposite of what transpired. Um, so there's a couple of ways we can go with this. I'm happy to do a deep dive on what's possible and what's not possible please, and what's constraining vis-a-vis okay. natural gas in the U.S. But I would say up front that um, rather than feeling threatened about potentially losing his power in the future, we would propose that Putin felt emboldened because he had all the power today. 
um, there's two sides of the same co- coin, I suppose, and nobody could get in the, into the head of a dictator like uh, Vladimir Putin, um, but that's how we would certainly view the problem. Now, let's talk about natural gas. Um, at its peak, the price of natural gas in Europe was 15 times the price of natural gas in the U.S. And one, there's a couple of challenges when you talk energy, um, one of which is units. So, you know, in, the, in America, we talk about um, dollars per million BTU, and I always like to quote things in the same units. Um, and um, so like today, the, the price of natural gas in the U.S. is $6 per million BTU, and then, and then the Dutch TTF, sort of a benchmark contract in Europe, is somewhere around $35 per million BTU. Um, maybe put in, putting in the numbers that everyone understand, um, if you multiply those numbers by six, you get the price of oil equivalent. So $35 natural gas in, in the Dutch TTF contract is roughly the equivalent of $200 oil today. Um, natural gas has several challenges, um, not the least of which it is a gas. And um, because it is a gas, um, it's very difficult to transport. And um, natural gas is produced um, you know, in rural areas and has to be transported to where it can be burned to make power or reacted with to make chemicals or reacted with to make fertilizer or burned to make heat for homes. Um, so the U.S. has a pretty extensive pipeline network, and the U.S. is blessed with the largest natural gas deposits in the world, and the U.S. is blessed with a um, whole series of innovative companies that have cracked the code on how to extract natural gas economically um, via fracking. Um, but in order to um, lift that gas out of the fields and, and transport it to where it is useful, you need pipelines over land. And then for it to um, be shipped overseas, you need these giant LNG carriers. Um, And um, the liquefied part of the liquefied natural gas is important because what what that needs then is a multi-billion dollar facility that takes gas from pipelines, chills it down to very, very cold temperatures so that it can be transformed from a gas to a liquid. Then it gets pumped onto these carriers shipped around the world, and those carriers can only offload to what are known as regasification facilities, which are also multi-billion dollar, years-long-to-build type projects. And so um, because of the shale revolution in the U.S., price of natural gas in the U.S. is incredibly cheap. At one point, you couldn't give it away, Um, not the least of which because much natural gas is developed here. Um, It's what's called associated gas. you're drilling for oil and you get all this natural gas that you literally don't know what to do with. And so um, the, the natural gas production in the U.S. has exploded. The U.S. has become a net energy exporter again. But the ability to remove that gas from North America is constrained by the size and number of these LNG export facilities that have, are you know, rapidly being built along the eastern coast of the United States and the Gulf of Mexico, uh, particularly in Texas and Louisiana. But that's all measurable numbers. Um, you know uh, when those projects are coming online and roughly how much gas they'll be able to liquefy if they run them full throttle. These facilities are hard to run. They require maintenance. They're expensive to make. They're time-consuming. Building them um, requires the confrontation of nimbyism uh, and all of the environmental uh, nuisance lawsuits that you would find in the U.S. And so um, it's not the kind of thing that you can just turn on a dime and the capacity for the U.S. and Qatar in Australia, who are the three largest natural gas producers in the world, at least Latin, largest producers of LNG in the world, I should say, 
the capacity for them to offset Europe's demand from Russia is limited and comes at a significant expense, which is what are Japan, China, and South Korea going to do for their much-needed natural gas? And so there is no free lunch here. Um, it's all trade-offs. And the, you know, the price elasticity of demand is, uh, of energy is high because energy is life. And um, when energy is in short supply, only the rich can afford to, play, to pay the clearing price. And I, I worry, and, and we've written, that the um, elevated clearing price for LNG that Europe will set will be felt in c catastrophic outcomes uh, around the world, and, and we're already starting to see that. So I know, I know that was a lot, and I'm happy to answer any questions you might have based on what I just said. But the, the, these are they're complicated, but also really understandable and measurable if you know what you're, if you know what you're looking for. Yeah, and they're also subject to shipping costs, because if you look at the Baltic Dry Index and see it's at one point it was at 2008 levels which was seriously elevated we've got supply chain problems um at a time when people are you know that the, the, you had ports completely blocked up with with ships mm -hmm. etc you you have that problem so it's not even just the cost of the liquefied natural gas itself it's the cost of actually transporting it so my thought was that it was this was more of a long-term strategy by the U.S. to um, undermine Russia's position um, rather than a alternative. It was a viable alternative. So, yeah, clearly, it, a pipe with gas in it is going to be much better than than having it on a ship. Um, but it was the best that could could be done in the short term. But also, if you've got an abundance of a product and you can make money out of it, then why not export it? But it seems so strange that you have a product in america that at one stage you could virtually not give away and yet we're in a position now where we are so desperate for lower energy prices but you, you make a good point about the um the viability about green energy and it's something that we've spoken at length about on this podcast in the past because um certainly tim's research and and some of the guests that 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 we're grateful through Tim to go on the show have been talking about this a lot and especially in terms of buying uranium and and the problems that just aren't talked about with renewable energy um what would you say are the main challenges to renewable energy and, and why it just won't work because we all want a green planet in the sense that we don't want to pollute the planet um and we want sustainable energy but at the same time that that's that's not really possible at the moment so I wouldn't go so strong as to say that um, renewables can't be a, a significant part of an intelligently designed total energy policy that takes into account both carbon emissions and the standard of living we would like to um, spread across the world. Um, there is a place for um, each of these inputs. And um, if I had to sort of, if you pressed me, I'm, I'm sort of, more favorably inclined to solar technology than I am to wind. Um, the um, if if you actually dig into how these wind wind um, these wind turbines are made, it's it's an enormous amount of material, um, the steel and the epoxy that goes into the blades, and none of this is recyclable. And you have to carve up so much, you know, land and forests, and there's issues with birds. Um, none of those are as um, challenging if you look at solar. Um, the real challenge with solar is we have allowed the Chinese to take over the production of polysilicon, um, and they've been using, um, let's just say, a cheap labor, to be polite, 
mm. and um, some would say slave labor um, and um, cheap, cheap, dirty natural gas to undercut uh, international producers of polysilicon and um, take over some 85 to 90 percent of the production of that material. And uh, one of our policy proposals in a, a piece I believe was called it's, it's Time to Get Serious About Energy um, was that the U.S. should co-locate polysilicon plants in Appalachia and in the natural gas, giant natural gas fields that it has uh, in the Midwest and, the, and, the, and Texas, Oklahoma areas um, so that we can produce polysilicon that will be needed for solar using cheap natural gas, which is much cleaner, while simultaneously giving um, high, bang, high paying jobs to the, to the domestic workforce and most importantly, uh, insisting upon and achieving strict environmental controls at these facilities because having visited um, various um, commodity production facilities in China, uh, the, um, the level of environmental uh, controls, um, let's just say they're inconsistent with what we, uh, with what we have in the West. And um, because of NIMBYism, uh, we have outsourced much of the production of the critical goods we need for both regular energy and um, renewable energy to countries where uh, environmental controls are substandard. And, and how is that good for the planet? Um, so, you know, it's a complex answer to your question. Um, there's a place for um, renewable energy. Uh, there's a place for a huge place for nuclear. There's always going to be a place for natural gas. It's just too useful for too much of what humans need. Uh, but there are reasonable things you can do um, that can su substantially diminish your CO2 emissions while simultaneously um, providing uh, life nourishing energy for as many people as possible. And that last point is critical. You know, um, the, the consequences of energy ignorance uh, are, is literally starvation. Um, uh, for, for Paul and Tim and, <coughs> and Doomberg, the energy crisis is a inconvenience, somewhere between an inconvenience and an annoyance. For many, many hundreds of millions of people that are right on the line, it's a life, or death, issue. It's a life or death issue. And, and um, you know, we wrote a piece all the way back in October called Starvation Diet, which flagged the fact that China had banned the exports of phosphate. And it wasn't on anybody's radar. It, it was reported in some obscure um, U.S. agricultural newspaper that we just happened to have come across. And we immediately connected the dots to the natural gas crisis that was unfolding in Europe. You know, ammonia comes from natural gas. Phosphate is mined. Ammonia and phosphate and potassium are the three, you know, critical fertilizers. And we immediately knew um, what it meant that China was, um, ex you know, uh, limiting its exports of phosphates. And in hindsight, that was probably in preparation for what they had to know was was Putin's intentions in the Ukraine. And so, um, you know, the Chinese knew what was coming and they acted accordingly. Um, and so it, it, it's sad to see play out. Um, we, we, we wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago that went kind of super viral for us. It's over a quarter million views on Substack um, called Farmers on the Brink. And uh, in that piece, we said no team wants to be more wrong on this issue than us. Mm. Uh, we, would, we would love nothing more than to be ridiculed a year from now for having been alarmist. Um, we suspect we won't be. And, um, you know, when you believe something is alarming – um, coming down the pipe, you kind of have a responsibility to be alarmist so that you can maybe um, shock some people into thinking correctly about the problem. I, I do fear, back to our original point about politicians, um, it's going to be too little too late by the time they realize it. Do you attach any credibility to the view that 
what's happening in the world in relation to energy, to prices, to inflation is not happening by accident, but by design, that this is a controlled demolition of what we've grown up with in the West. I've seen those conspiracy theories. Um, Lord knows we are a skeptical enough crowd that um, we have thus far resisted the temptation to bathe in such pools. Um, And I I would be, let's just put it this way, in a world where that's true, uh, I'm not too enthusiastic about living in it. Well, I, clearly, I, know, I echo the the sentiment hundred percent. But uh, but it is becoming difficult to uh, nullify that hypothesis as we see ongoing idiocy in our political leaders. If I, you know, that's a very eloquent eloquent way of describing the describing the nature of the problem. I, I was going to ask it in a different way, which was why aren't they listening to experts like yourself? It, and obviously, that's a very hard question for you to answer, Doomberg. But it's. It kind of, it just doesn't. I, it just doesn't make sense. I have some theories, um, and I'm sure it's the same in the UK. the The gauntlet of personal destruction one has to uh, run through in order to obtain high office in the US prohibits most right-minded experts um, from pursuing a career in politics. The opportunities in the private sector are far more lucrative. One of the unique things about Doomberg is we are filled with industrial experts who no longer work in industry and are free to speak our mind. Most industrial experts are married to their stock options mm. and um, and have corporate public affairs teams who strictly control what those executives are allowed to say, lest they annoy governments. And they're busy getting theirs while they're getting as good. And I don't blame them. We used to be those people, okay? Mm. Um, but um, who wants to give up a six or seven figure job in the private sector to go have your private life destroyed in an effort to uh, slog it out in politics. And so we have an old, you know, the old expression that we use is we're kind of left with the still bottoms, you know, mm-hmm. only the people that um, um, either don't have the expertise or uh, have a certain ethical compass that they're willing to um, to lie and, and to cheat their way to the top, end up at the top. And then you sort of run that distillation over decades and you end up with the least qualified, um, least uh, capable people uh, running the government. I look, there's some really great people in government. There's some honest, earnest politicians trying to do right. This is, We're painting with a very broad brush here. But mm. if you asked me to uh, give you a generalized answer, um, most experts don't, it's not worth the hassle. Um, they could go to Wall Street and make more money. They could be an executive at a firm and make more money. Um, and most um, experts that I know sort of try to view the, the government uh, in as hands-off a way as possible because it, it is truly, we're at the point with you know, social media and invasive um, intrusions into your personal life and the, the scandals that make the front page of the tabloids. And um, you know, who wants to go through that? I certainly don't. Um, the, the, the analogy I make is that for, for those of us that worked in finance in 08, uh, oh, it was the global financial crisis was clearly an unmitigated disaster, but it, what it reflected with hindsight was regulatory capture. Mm-hmm. So arguably what's happening in relation to what I would call bad pharma now is it doing, showing exactly the same attributes, which is uh, an industry that previously people might have borderline trusted seems to be behaving as if it's completely, it, it, it's marking its own homework. And there's no question that uh, the, the subset of people who do end up in these powerful regulatory bodies uh, participate in what's known as the revolving door phenomenon. And they're from the moment they're in those agencies are angling for the big white shoe job that they can get um, when their time is up. 
and um, the ecosystem around Washington D.C. is uh, is quite frankly disgusting, and um, the level of um, corruption and grift um, and selective enforcement of the rules is is uh, literally unbelievable. You know, we have a Speaker of the House in the U.S., Nancy Pelosi, whose husband. Um, uh, YOLO trades and call options uh, uh, in companies who have important legislation um, under consideration uh, by his wife. And this is all like blatant and it's publicized. And um, it's just what's to be done about it? Um, what can you do? The powerful people are, uh, we wrote a piece um, about the Fed uh, insider trading scandal. I'm sure, I'm not sure if that has made its way over to. Uh, to the UK, but um, we have a we had a Fed governor, the president of the Dallas Fed, um, day trading S and P futures during the COVID crisis. What? Um, while, it seems entirely legitimate to me. <laughs> while going on TV and and talking his book, uh, it you literally can't make it up. And um, I, I'm I'm scrolling through to pull up the piece now because you, you, it's just so unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, and yet not you know. So he resigned. He was forced to resign. Um, but you know, why isn't he prosecuted? I mean, he's basically insider trading. He's front running the public using his privileged position as a you know a Fed president and met several other um, similarly um, appointed uh, individuals are doing the same. And in fact, in the U.S., it is not illegal for um, members of Congress to trade on insider information. Like they, it's literally not illegal. And um, so they do it. That is quite extraordinary. And, and, that, they, that is they, quite extraordinary. They do it with reckless abandon, like it, it like literally. Um, you know, the <laughs> when COVID first hit, um, a couple of very powerful senators were briefed by the intelligence agencies and immediately left the briefing and dumped all their stocks. Mm. And you know the plebs are left with um, the other end of that trade. Like the people who bought those stocks from those senators didn't know what the senators knew. Um, and they probably might not have um, engaged in those transactions if they had known the same information that um, our public servants, quote unquote, knew. Well, I, I, I still miss the Nancy Pelosi hedge fund tracker on Twitter that yeah. was rudely removed. And uh... yeah, that that it's, it's well, that's the ultimate. I mean, um, if we could all trade on on Nancy Pelosi's uh, quote unquote knowledge, we'd be a, <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't be flogging um, articles on on Substack for a living. That's for sure. Isn't one of the problems with energy that it takes such long-term vision and politicians are so focused on the next year, two years or, or four years in order to get re-elected? Yeah, I would say that's a consistent criticism of political leadership overall, which is um, you, you nobody is thinking past the next election. Um, and so... That's a real challenge, especially in energy and especially in the U.S., where one, you know, the, the, the politically judicial system in the U.S. is pretty remarkable in its uh, heterogeneity. And there's a fun, phenomenon where you have professional, you know, um, nuisance law firms who, who are funded by Lord knows who, who whose existence is uh, entirely predicated on making it as difficult as possible to get industrial projects completed. And they... They engage in what's known as judge shopping, where they sort of bring their case to the region or the courts uh, in the U.S. that they feel are most amenable to their um, 
to their costs. And um, and they are largely successful. You know, we, we wrote a piece about the Mountain Valley Pipeline. So Appalachia is this, um, has an amazing abundance of natural gas and it's mostly trapped. And all that's needed to lift that gas out of there and connect it into the pipelines that ultimately feed, say, an LNG export facility um, is a couple of big pipeline projects. And uh, one of those Mountain Valley Pass, it's 95% complete. It's been permitted since 2018. And they just had their permit revoked for a second time because of one of these nuisance lawsuits. And it's literally a few miles of pipeline needed um, to complete this thing. And we could better supply Europe and better offset the consequences of Putin. And um, is the president of the United States forming a committee to try to um, you know, um, fast track these projects? No. Um, we live in this live in this world where our, our politicians manage to the optics, not to the outcomes. And then we wonder why the outcomes are poor. So the the problem with um, with energy with renewables um, in terms of you know solar energy and and the power that's generated by windmills. Um, I, I don't know if people realise that that the grids provide power, but they don't store any energy. Is part of the problem that you that it's not so much the production of energy; it's the being able to store it for peak times and then deliver it when it's needed as opposed to actually generating it because of course solar energy you don't of course generate it at night but people need more energy at night when it's cold and therefore they use more power um is is that part of the problem yeah no yeah yes the um the the operation the successful operation of a power grid is um an underappreciated miracle of modern technology and as you correctly identified the issue with creating electricity is um, the people who create and distribute it have to exactly match demand because they have very limited ability to store. And grid reliability is the metric around which we have decided to optimize. Um, and we've all become accustomed to the fact that every time we walk into a room and flip a light switch, the light comes on. Um, and this is what society in the West has come to expect. And frankly, um, we ought to be able to provide. Um, so the phenomenon that you're describing is what's known as the intermittency of um, energy sources. And um, solar is pre more, uh, it's predictably intermittent in the sense that you can get a sense for weather and cloud cover and, and things like that. And, and uh, wind is a little harder to model, but still pretty predictable. Um, but because we don't have... Um, we don't have the ability to store it. And by the way, battery technology for storing is, is is a real challenge. There are some innovative gravity solution type storage things that we've been researching that we might write about someday um, that would circumvent the need for these critical um, you know, battery materials. But by and large, um, there does not exist today in the sort of Western Europe and, and North American power grids sufficient storage capacity to handle the intermittency the variation of the electricity produced from a substantial amount of renewable energy. And that's why we're so, um, we're so pro nuclear power because nuclear power. It's always on. It's always on. It's 92% on, um, versus say 25% of the time for solar. So what does that mean? Um, if you're, if you have a, a solar array rated at, um, a megawatt, um, on average, you can expect, you know, 250 kilowatts of, Power being produced as a 25% uh, production factor. And um, the highest on the list, the most reliable, the highest energy density is nuclear with 92% um, 
think uh, natural gas is next somewhere in the 70s. I'll have to get the numbers. Uh, and coal is a little bit below that because coal has a lot more maintenance and pollution controls and, and things like that. And so um, if you're going to bring on a huge amount of solar while simultaneously reducing the most reliable um, baseload power, so the two types of power generally are categorized as baseload, i.e. always on, and intermittent, i.e. renewable. And what that necessitates then is to include what's known as peaking power plants. Um, so you put on a, a natural gas power plant whose only job is to turn on when it's needed to um, help level off the, the volatility and variability of renewable power. And of course, uh, irony of ironies is, is these plants are expensive to build because they're rarely turned on. Um, and then they are not very efficient um, because the you know, ramp up and ramp down of these power plants makes their operation suboptimal. And so in a way, the inclusion of solar and, and wind onto the grid um, you have to include the negative consequences of the need for these peaking power plants. Um, and all that is fine, um, but it's insane that you would do that uh, while simultaneously reducing your, your baseload nuclear power. It's, it's inexplicably stupid. The intermittency thing is something I came across at quite a young age. My school used to have a, a holiday cottage in Snowdonia in North Wales. And I remember going there when I was 12 or 13, and we, uh, we went to see a hydro uh, plant and uh, the, we, we used to do a little log, we used a little sort of project to sort of sum up what we'd done at the end of this this visit. And um, the, the thing they said was that um, there was a, a big a big spike in the 60s, for example, when the first James Bond film, Dr. No, was shown on British television. And I'd assumed it was everyone turning on their TV, but it wasn't because the TV's already on. It was, it was when the first commercial break happened that everyone went off to boil a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> naturally. You know, while you were telling that story, I pulled up the um, the relative performance of each of these inputs, and and the technical phrase is capacity factor. And so, if your listeners want to Google capacity factor and click images, one of the prominent ones that comes up is a is a chart from the U.S. Department of Energy, which compares the various sources uh, of energy. And so, nuclear power is rated at ninety three point five percent. Natural gas fifty six point eight. Coal 47.5, hydro 39 and change, wind roughly 35, and solar roughly 25. And so um, you can tell by just looking at that chart that if your policy is to close down nuclear power plants while simultaneously bringing on wind and solar. You're a moron. Well, and you're going to be left with more expensive energy that is less mm. reliable. And mm. um, your manufacturing base requires neither of those. I mean, what, what, I, what I get from this is as a non-scientist, and I, don't, and I don't say that as someone who doesn't respect science or merely someone who wasn't scientifically trained, is you, this surely makes an argument of having the widest range of inputs possible in terms of all these different um, energy sources. The one I remember, there's a guy here, Jim Mellon. I remember Jim Mellon um, making the point for solar, which is that the solar technology is a beneficiary of Moore's law. It's difficult yeah. to argue against that in the long term. I can argue against that. Um, oh, like. fire, fire away, fire away. <laughs> so I, I, I have pretty extensive experience in the solar industry. And um, the claim that um, the ever-reducing costs of solar power was because of Moore's Law, which implies a technical innovation, is um, so at odds with the reality um, on the ground that one wonders what the motivation of the people 
could be that are making such claims. So the reason why well, I'm solar, sure it can't be anything to do with money. It, yeah. The and look, the, the price of solar had come down for a very long time for the reasons we articulated earlier. The Chinese decided they wanted to be strategic in the production of polysilicon. They used cheap labor and dirty coal to radically undercut the uh, cost of production of polysilicon around the world. Almost all Western polysilicon plants were forced to shutter, and they did. Uh, there are only three polysilicon plants in the U.S. still remaining, um, and they only exist because of the amazing gift that is U.S. domestic natural gas supply. Um, but the for years, the the decreasing price of solar was because the and I was in the market. I felt it. Um, you know, the, we used to say like if if your competitor is not um, is not in, uh, implementing environmental controls or labor controls, how do you expect us to compete on price? Um, so what happened with the European energy prices proves our point. Um, the price of natural gas, liquefied natural gas, spiked. China is a big producer of that. So the energy crisis in um, Europe um, bled into China. And China, as the number one producer of polysilicon, um, went into crisis mode. And the first thing they did was they cut um, they cut the, product, the, the, the industries that use the most energy. Okay? And so I, as we're speaking, I just pulled up the price, the price of uh, polysilicon, solar grade polysilicon, and um, you know, uh, forgetting the units in mid 2020, it was you know six dollars. And uh, right now on my screen, I'm looking at 34. Why is that? Because production of polysilicon is energy intense. China owns 85% of the production capacity. Um, they stole intellectual property. They abused labor and they burned cheap coal. And they undercut all international producers on price, which gave the appearance of smooth, ever decreasing costs of solar. Uh, but today, that cost is much higher than it was last year and the year mm. before, um, because literally, back to our original conversation about energy flows as analogous to financial flows, um, the cost of energy skyrocketed in China, and that meant that you know a solar panel is nothing more than stored potential energy. Um, the cost of polysilicon has gone through the roof. Now, there was certainly some innovation in the industry. But uh, to claim that there was some sort of Moore's Law type um, innovation, innovation process um, that explained the variance of, of, of solar price uh, is foolish. One thing you haven't mentioned, I don't think, is wave power. And the, the one energy that seems to be genuinely renewable for as long as we have a moon would appear to be that. Does, does wave power even factor anywhere in the world? I just don't think that it could be done at a scale that would make it relevant. Yeah. Um, and there's all kinds of environmental issues um, with that as well. You know, you, you have marine life and you have the oceans. And so um, same issue with, you know, so sure, it might work in Iceland. Um, but, you know, these are all, we are sort of a yes and um uh, team when it pertains mm. to energy, we're all for, as you say, sort of as many. Let, let, let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah, and and let the market um, dictate, you know, the winners. Um, but you know, back to you said something, you know, like you should be all for all various forms. I mean, there are optimization parameters that we as a society may want to impose, including aesthetics. Well, including I was going to say the amount of carbon emissions. Mm. Um, 
like that is a viable thing that we, we might want to be able to produce energy with the least amount of carbon impact possible. Um, but we can't have just that as the optimization parameter. You also have to have how many people can we feed? Um, how many people on the planet can we satisfy you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? There's a billion people that for whom at the bottom of the pyramid, um, basic shelter, water, and food is a day-to-day fight. Mm. Um, and in the meantime, um, you know, we're, ho- we're hosting the World Cup in, in Qatar. You know, it, it, what, is the, what is the carbon footprint of that entire event from qualification to you know, the tournament? It's it was, substantial. It was- you're right. I mean, the one thing I used to work for a firm that was was owned by the Qataris, and I remember going to a shopping mall, and I think they had a, an artificial ski slope, <laughs> and I know they had they had golf courses, and the idea of having golf courses and ski slopes in the middle of the desert struck me as slightly obscene. A poor use of our limited energy supplies, um, especially you know we say there's a sort of a proximity effect to ethics. You know, if if the three of us were having a nice dinner, and there was a starving child at the table next to us. Uh, we would um, we would not be wasting much food, and we'd probably buy that child a meal. Mm. Uh, well, why do we do that and not help the billion people around the world that are fighting for meals every day? Why? Mm. Because we're looking at that child. Yeah. And that child is tugging at our heartstrings, and we're empathetic people. Um, and so there is a proximity effect to ethics. As gross as it might feel to hit a golf ball in an indoor golf course in the middle of the desert. Um, or an outdoor golf course, I guess, that has artificially greened um, lawns. Exactly, exactly. Um, Or to ski indoors, I guess, is what Mm. you said was indoors. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. To to do those things while staring at a bunch of starving people alongside the golf course is a whole nother level, right? Um, But the only difference between um, our internalization of the wastefulness is the proximity to the victim. So you mentioned the um, use of battery power as a storage facility in terms of the intermittency problem as not being viable why is that because with more and more people getting electric cars it is possible potentially for people to charge their cars overnight actually use their cars as a short-term power source to feed into their house when they're not using their car and potentially limit this problem on a kind of micro level as opposed to a macro level so very, look, the very complex answer to a very valid question. And um, I would say it's a bit of a mischaracterization to say that we think it's not viable. We think there are things that are necessary to accomplish before it, be, it, it can become viable, right. but those things are doable. Now, let's separate the problem. There are two separate problems. What does the battery architecture and energy density need to look like to be viable for solving our transportation needs? And what does the battery density and minerals required and storage capacity for shaving off our home domestic needs? Because they're two completely different batteries. And to try to get the same battery set to solve both problems is is unlikely to be workable in the long term. Not the least of which these batteries only have so many cycles. People expect that their cars will last 100,000 kilometers, 200,000 kilometers, 300,000 kilometers. Um, but back to a, the point we made earlier, if your objective is to optimize the amount of fossil fuel you can displace in the transportation sector using batteries, which are in limited supply. Um, plug-in hybrids are far superior to full battery electric. Just, just, just not arguable. Yeah. Um, and the minerals, the metals and the materials that are needed for those have all gone vertical in the energy crisis. I'm sure you're aware of the breakdown of the nickel market in oh, the yeah. London Metal Exchange. 
um, that is really a consequence of a huge demand for uh, these materials based on the projections that all of these automakers are making for the penetration of electric vehicles, which are going to be unattainable. It only takes one constraint to understand what the answer is. Um, we argue that um, we should be proactively getting vehicles on the road that can give you 60, 70, 80 miles per gallon with you know, um, 15 to 20 kilowatt hour type battery packs with small internal combustion engines uh, and proliferate the number of, of hybrid vehicles on the road per battery pound uh, versus um, the vanity cars that have these huge battery packs um, that are a giant waste of resources and are, and are ultimately destructive to the economy. Now, home storage is a whole different issue. And then mm. grid storage is an entirely different issue on top of that. Um, and yeah. so I'm happy to get into them. But uh, these are these are all sort of knowable things, but they get confused and um, they get blurred in the public discourse yeah, uh, to the detriment of the planet. Um, yeah, it, it was... I, it, I wanted to lead into battery technology for cars, but you, you were doing it there so you know brilliantly. Um, I don't seriously believe that, that the current proposition of cars that are coming on the market are necessarily fit for purpose. It, they take a long time to charge. They haven't got the range that petrol's got. I've always thought that as a technology, cars are too heavy. And there is something fundamentally wrong with them. If if you look at the weight that they are carrying, which is just us, we are not heavy. You know, we're not heavy per the weight of the car. There's a huge amount of waste that goes with it. But the problem is you have to have a heavy car because if you're in a collision with another heavy car, you're going to die. So there is this this base level that you can't move away from. So I wanted to talk about whether you thought we would cycle into which is what I believe. Everyone, cycle, cycle instead. Cycle, full stop. But cycle into the um, the battery technology with electric cars and then look at the next source beyond, because which I think will be hydrogen. Um, I know there are challenges, and I'd love to hear what you've got to say about that. Um, but it, it was clear that for a very long time we could have moved to the electric car, but we didn't for whatever reason. Um some of the reasons, obviously, we've just discussed, but in, in a in a city, range isn't much of a problem. So you could coexist, like have this coexist idea, which is basically what you're saying now. Yeah. Just make more efficient petrol-driven cars and have them coexist, either have a small engine in an electric car or just make them so efficient that they do the job and they do most of the, the short-hop journeys that you want to do in a city. And for anyone who's driven in a the city these days, you can't go faster than 20 miles an hour, otherwise you get a ticket. So there's no point having a Ferrari. Um, so what would, sorry, I've made a few points there, but what would you say to the future of, yeah. of battery technology in cars? Again, so differentiating between battery technologies and cars versus home storage versus grid storage, because mm. they have different critical to quality attributes. Yeah. What are the critical to quality attributes for a vehicle? Energy density. That that might not be such a big deal if you, you live in a home. You might have more room for a bigger battery that has lower energy density um, and has higher, you know, cycle resistivity and has lower um, fire hazard. You know, what you're talking about ultimately is um, the need for measured trade-offs to complex problems with multiple variables that we care about. And um, we believe if the true objective of batteries for 
propulsion, i.e. transportation, uh, is to offset as much fossil fuels as we can. That it's just unquestionable that um, all um, vehicles should at least be soft hybrids. Uh, the technology behind the Prius, for example, the Toyota Prius, uh, I believe that's probably the same model in the UK. Um, you know, they have a, what, a, a three kilowatt hour battery, I believe, and, the, and these cars get 50 miles per gallon, which is just really remarkable. Um, the next level up is plug-in hybrids where um, you can drive, let's say, uh, 20, 30, 40 miles uh, on the battery alone before the engine kicks in. Uh, and then when the engine quote kicks in, it just becomes a Prius, a soft hybrid. Um, and then you have the full battery electrics. And if battery supplies are the constraint, we have to manage to that constraint. And battery supplies are the constraint. There's not enough lithium in the world. There's not enough nickel in the world. There's not enough copper in the world to fully electrify the fleet on the time frame that we've committed to. Mm. So what will happen? We will run up against the laws of physics. Like there are other. You can it change the laws of physics, Captain. Yes, you know it's you're we're hurtling sixty miles an hour into the brick wall of physics, and we will crash into that wall. <laughs> That's um, a brilliant phrase. And um, look, uh, but look, there's, there's batteries are a subset of energy storage solutions. Okay, so a battery for a vehicle. Let's not call them electric vehicles. The use of batteries to minimize our fossil fuel consumption in the transportation sector is wise and we should be doing more of it and we should be doing it more smartly that's our view the use of batteries as a storage solution for the home to level off uh, and enable the uh, proliferated distribution of solar for example um, is wise and we should do that and the the same technology that goes that is ideal for the set of trade-offs you would want for a home storage solution is different than what you need for a vehicle and then for grid storage, it's an entirely different thing. Um, and there are, you yeah, know, yeah. innovative technologies like water pumping, for example, or uh, there's some gravity solutions where excess power is used to lift a heavy weight high up in the air. And then when they need more electricity, they just let gravity pull that weight back to the ground. And it's a very efficient way to store electricity that requires no precious metals. Um, this, this, this is a, these are technologies that we should be deploying at the grid level. So the... Easy answer is let's just all buy electric vehicles, uh, but that's not a sane one, and it's not one that will work. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, I was just just wanted to cut in for that point about um, it, it's not compatible with your your home uh, energy requirements. But there was there's a program that's on in the UK uh, called BBC Click, and they did a feature with this guy who had an electric car, and he was powering his his family home with with it and not only was it not costing him money he was making money out of selling it back to the grid now the government can be a bit crafty like that where when you start to do it and then suddenly they say well you know we're not going to we're not going to pay these rates that we we promised to guarantee and then everything sort of falls down in terms of the value of it but even if it was more efficient it seemed to work that you would be buying sure. electricity overnight and then using it during the day in your car yeah. and if you're not using your car you can use it for your house and um so that, that's why i was think, thinking okay at the at the production site you you can't store it so you've got all this solar energy and you can't pump it into the you can't do anything with it because nobody wants it and then suddenly they want it what do you do you can't have huge batteries or super capacitors yeah. or anything like that um because it's just not viable 
or not viable at the moment, but on a micro level, it it might be viable, even though electric cars potentially aren't the answer. So you you put a word in my mouth that I didn't use that oh, I'd like to correct, which was, uh, I didn't say they weren't viable. I, my case is that it's not optimal. Oh, okay. There are better solutions to that problem. Sure. Uh, okay. One of the reasons why it's not optimal might be that you will burn down that battery <laughs> much more quickly, mm. um, cycling it every night at home as opposed to just using the battery when you're driving your car. You know, So if you're prepared to have your car battery need to be replaced after driving 40,000 kilometers on it, then you have to factor that into the cost-benefit analysis of using a battery pack designed and optimized for a vehicle to have a secondary role of being an um, excess um, you know, a, a, a power storage device for your home. They're two mm. separate objectives with two separate idealized battery profiles. Can you do that today? Absolutely. There is no technical constraint. There's nothing that makes it inviable, but there's plenty that could make it suboptimal. And that was the point that I was making earlier. I just, I just want to make sure that I corrected um, sorry. any misinterpretation yeah, that, that, I might have given. Um, that, was, but, that was my uh, mistake. Yeah, sorry. I, I now yeah. understand. Yeah, because, Paul, you unfeeling bastard. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to be mean to the poor little chick. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> not know, mean at all. You know, no. just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are important points that we've studied a lot, and and words matter. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So I just to make sure. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I have a a a superficial view of it, just a, an interested view. I understand lithium battery technology. I know how it works, um, and I know that. It, it can be very dangerous. There is the element of if you have an electrical fire with a, an electric car, it's a big problem. You can't just t rock up in a in a fire truck and start chucking water at it because you're going to make the problem worse. And well, they, uh, they don't go near it, do they? They just stand around waiting for it to burn out. Well, yeah, I, I'm yeah. not sure they can do anything. And and so it, it is. And the, people don't realise that the amount of times that you recharge a battery reduce its life. So that. Yeah. Although I knew that, I, d I didn't think of that when you, with regard to it powering the house. Yeah. So that that does so, make perfect sense. Let's build that out a bit. So let's separate the problems. Problem one is I would like to displace as much fossil fuel as I can from my transportation needs, uh, integrated across society. And problem two is I would like to um, level off the demand at the at the dwelling level um, for power um, across society. They're two separate problems with different idealized um, parameters for the solution. For the vehicle, you are most concerned with energy density because in addition to carrying the car and all of the safety mechanisms that are embedded in it and the passengers, you have to carry the battery as well. And so there's yeah. like when heavy. there's only, right. And so there, despite the fire risk, um, there's sufficient advancement of battery cooling technology and all the associated systems that the automotive OEMs feel comfortable putting these things on the road. Um, if you are going to design a storage device for your home, um, you have a whole different set of parameters and energy density might not be one of them. Your primary parameter might be fire safety to a whole different order of magnitude than you might want in a car because a fire in a home battery is, is truly catastrophic. Um, you might be concerned with cycle life. There are some incredibly long-lived batteries that you can recharge thousands and thousands of losing too much of their capacity. Those batteries might not be very energy dense. They, another parameter might be you want to minimize the amount of um, 
nickel and cobalt in these batteries because these these materials are mined in parts of the world that have, um, let's just say, environmental and labor challenges, especially cobalt. Um, so you might go with a completely different battery architecture for your home and a completely different battery architecture and distribution of those batteries for the transportation problem. And that's the only point I'm making, which is um, when you see stories like the chap who is um, using his electric vehicle to, you know, get a, get his hands on some um, elevated, uh, um, you know, uh, electricity uh, money from the government um, because the government is trying to sort of encourage this kind of behavior. Um, that is a very simplistic and an odd and suboptimal way to look at the problem. And, um, and that's the only point we're making. Like, hmm. let's, let's define what the problem is. Let's understand what the critical to quality parameters are for each of those problems. And then let's implement the smartest, most effective, least environmentally destructive solution for each of those problems. So if you're going to put solar panels on your roof, which we're all for, and you want to store that energy during the day, which we're all for, um, a lithium-ion battery might not be, in fact, almost certainly isn't, the ideal solution, especially when you have to consider that the demand for such batteries will have to come at the expense of the ability to use them in a transportation problem. You see where I'm going? Yeah, yeah. So um, would you say, what, lead-acid batteries or, or something else? Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole myriad of battery technologies that, um, that have a range of characteristics, and, um, and we should explore all of those. And, you know, um, there's a lot of research money pouring into the space, quite correctly. Um, and we do, except for example, like solid state batteries might be able to solve both. They might be incredibly safe, very high energy dense. Um, I know Toyota has kind of bet their research farm on, on, on uh, the development of solid state batteries. It's, it's a long held holy grail of the battery industry. Um, you know, but there's all kinds of batteries out there, um, that are in various stages of development. And, um, we should be proactively working to identify which problem we're trying to solve. What are the critical parameters that we want to optimize? And what, from the suite of technologies available to us today, do we want to better chips with? Hydrogen technology. What, what do you think of yes. it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, we wrote a piece <laughs> called, uh, I'm not like blogging my, my literal book here, but um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we wrote a piece a few months ago called, What If Electricity Were Free? And uh, we came up with uh, an interesting, it was one of the types of things that we do in our consulting business for our clients who will hire us to think differently about a problem. It's kind of fun, fun way to live. Um, so we, we came up with a, a, a proposal that if energy, if electricity were free, because um, there had been some reports that nuclear fusion had had some breakthroughs and the um, ultimate energy holy grail of nuclear fusion was yet again just around the corner. And, and we count us amongst those who hope that's true. Um, if nuclear fusion made electricity virtually free, then that would make... Um, hydrogen virtually free and we believe um, that if hydrogen were virtually free we would burn it <laughs> in what's known as hydrogen combustion engines as opposed to powering fuel cell equipped cars um, with the, with the now suitably cheap hydrogen um, and why is that same problem with batteries fuel cells require um, very expensive precious metals um, whereas simply retrofitting an internal combustion engine to be able to burn uh, hydrogen instead of gas is a technology that exists and requires minimal um, incremental uh, strain on our, our mining industry. And so we believe that in a world where um, hydrogen could be plentifully made with minimal carbon emissions, 
the optimal way to use that hydrogen is to burn it in internal combustion uh, internal combustion engines, hydrogen combustion engines. How much uh, do you know of um, Nikola Tesla, Doomberg? The person? Yes. Uh, not much, to be honest with you. Um, I know that he existed, and I know that he um, is credited with many inventions, and I know that he has, shall we say, a, a controversial personality. Because the, the only reason I mention it, well, the main reason I mention it is in light of obviously this discussion and and, and loving The Prestige, which is one of my favorite films, in which he's played by uh, David Bowie. Um, this is from this is from something called the Fifth State. Tesla's long-held dream was to create a source of inexhaustible clean energy that was free for everyone. Do you think such a thing could exist? Because I'm a believer in uh, conspiracy stuff, whereby people have these dreams about things and then they're squashed by the the incumbent players in a given industry. I think in this case, fossil fuels. I think there's um, always some semblance of truth to such conspiracies. Uh, I hate the phrase conspiracy theory, by the way. I know. It's, it's, uh, designated it, by the CIA, I believe. As after a the way JFK to, assassination. As yeah, a way uh, to, to rubbish people who thought that the government yeah, might not necessarily be trusted in all things. Yes. So back to your original point. Um, <laughs> we There are truly industrial scale conspiracies that um, were once considered theories and have now been proven fact. Uh, we wrote a piece called In Praise of Corn Ethanol, which laid bare the real scandal of anti-knock, you know, lead anti-knock additives for gasoline and how DuPont and General General Motors and the the precursor to uh, to ExxonMobil, that Standard Oil, had conspired together to basically pollute the environment on an epic scale when a, a far more reasonable solution to the anti-knock problem, i.e. ethanol, um, existed. Uh, there's no question that the fossil fuel industry, for example, has been at least in part behind the funding to um, diminish and scare the population away from nuclear power. Mm. And to your point uh, with the quote about Nikola Tesla, uh, we would argue that um, that solution exists today. Like nuclear mm. energy is is effectively free vis-a-vis yeah. -vis, um, what, what people are paying around the world. And um, if we had a breakthrough in fusion, even more so. Um, so yeah, we the solutions to our problems um, they they already yeah. exist. They already yeah. exist. Do you, do you see any relevance that I know Rolls Royce has been mentioned by and recommended by some for their um, technology in like mini 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 power stations, um, sort of local yeah. local sort of mini nukes. Yeah, is that the, something uh, that you follow? Yeah, small small modular reactors, um, yeah. which is a really exciting technology. Um, one you know the, one of the countries that is um, leading in the development of, of such technology is um, is Canada. Um, and uh, but at the same time, you know, it, it it has been branded poorly. You know, it has the word nuclear in it. Um, and um, you know, it, in in our piece, a serious proposal on U.S. energy, which we published at the beginning of March, um, the uh, the third recommendation we made was called a priority three: recommit to nuclear. And uh, I'll quote from it: in particular, key as in um, Biden. Um, should work to accelerate the development and deployment of small modular reactors, which are safer, cheaper, and quicker to bring online than traditional power plants. And we listed mm -hmm. a few links for people to go to go and get caught up on that. Um, and so um, this is certainly something that we, we, have, we certainly understand. We're not experts in. Uh, we do have friends who are experts in, and, and we quote a couple to them. Um, mm -hmm. one, one of our good friends is a, a major nuclear power proponent called Dr. Chris Kiefer, and hosts a wonderful podcast called uh, Decouple. I've been on that show with him. He's a really brilliant guy. 
And um, he, he's sort of, those are the types of people, if you want to drill down uh, into such topics, that one should look up. Perfect. Thank you. A few years ago, I saw a documentary on Netflix um, before I knew what I know now about Bill Gates. And it was it's called De- Decoding Bill Gates. And at the end of it, I think it was a three-parter or something, but at the end of the three-part series, he was talking about some technology that he developed that effectively used spent um, nuclear waste and was a safe and viable way, or potentially viable way, I'll be careful how I use that word, but a safe <laughs> way to produce power. And um, he was trying to get the US to fund it, and apparently they didn't want to. And at the time, if my memory serves me, he was talking to the Chinese, which I thought was absolutely incredible. And A, that the technology existed, potentially. B, for what it meant, um, because it was using effective waste, but it was also safe. So the way it worked, it, it burnt down safely like a candle, rather than in in its in the opposite way of a nuclear reactor going. Um, if it can uh, go get out of control if it's not cooled, so it could, that couldn't happen. So the the previous problems that we've seen, unless obviously there's some design flaw, um, were thought of. But those two things were just so so incredible that I just thought, well, hang on a minute. If this is true, then the energy crisis is solved and everything else is is basically the companies keeping their, their grip on their, their current technologies because they don't want this to get out. Yeah, so let me um, reframe a little bit of that. I'm familiar with the, with the technology you're, you're describing. The, the name of his company is TerraPower, I believe. Yeah, it could um, be I saw it so so yeah. long ago that I, I literally just remember the, um, the broad. Well, details. he does seem to be associated with both terror and power. So yes, but let's let's be clear: existing nuclear power technology is incredibly safe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. This is a this is a um, a sleight of hand that the anti nuclear um, crowd um, likes to imply that there is somehow something more dangerous about nuclear power compared to all the other sources that we currently use. Nuclear power has the longest track record of safely producing the most amount of energy with minimal damage to the economy and minimal loss of human life. But um, people people remember Chernobyl. But this is, sure, okay, we drop nuclear bombs on Japan and Japan is still a, a vibrant country. Like, industrial accidents happen. No, but a nuclear bomb is different from a nuclear power plant. Yes, but uh, the, the, in the Western world... Um, the track record of nuclear power is incredibly safe. Now, mm. I just wanted to put that out there. If we just assume, however, that we want to take the risk of nuclear meltdown to zero, there do exist technologies that make it effectively impossible for such reactors to melt down. Um, now, we've, we'd like to say zero is an emotional number. <laughs> it, and so um, how many sort of sigma... Uh, events do you want to insure against? Because um, you know the the number of industrial accidents in on oil rigs or in in gas fields or in the development. Oh, sure, there's no there's yeah. no perfect yeah. solution. There's no perfect solution. So given that background, um, yeah, Bill Gates is one of many people pushing innovative technologies in the nuclear power space. Um, I believe they're they're working on a, a four billion dollar plant uh, to come online in. Um, in a town in Wyoming, um, uh, 
last I heard, um, this is progressing. I don't think it has been stunted by a conspiracy. Um, it is no doubt, however, there is no doubt that environmental groups steadfastly oppose, by and large, steadfastly oppose nuclear, especially Greenpeace. Um, and we, we wrote a piece called um, Greenpeace is a, is a, Greenpeace is a physics denier. <laughs> to use the turn of phrase um, that they use on, um, on people who question the, um, the, the global warming science. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that um, Bill Gates is a man with incredible resources and power. And if he is uh, hell-bent on demonstrating alternative nuclear technology, we have our doubts that a conspiracy would be able to stop him. But but my my question was: Does this, in, in your view as an expert, do you know if this is this is true that this technology does exist? There certainly exist a number of technologies for which the odds of a nuclear meltdown have been effectively reduced to zero. Right. The cost of demonstrating those safely at scale and getting the permits and convincing companies with the resources to do it is a different story. I would argue that the safe and widespread deployment of nuclear power is not a technology problem. It is a political problem, yeah. first, and then second, an economic one. Mm. We require no significant inventions to achieve that objective if we had the political and economic resources aligned. Right. So, mic drop. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something I've totally agreed with for a very long time. When you when you truly understand nuclear power, you it's it's a no brainer. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, people will point to the the problems that have happened before. But you know, this was Russia in nineteen eighty. What was it? Four or five or six? When when this happened? It six, was yeah. It was very old technology as well. So. And also, they were hiding the fact that they knew that there was a problem with it. So that's what we learned from Chernobyl, the the, the series. Yeah. And when you hear about how it happened, it also was a series of events that should never have happened in the first place. And of course, that would be the case. But it was a very, very unlikely event um, from, yeah. a, from a lot of factors. Um, but if we go back to the efficiency of, of solar power... Um, when you were saying before, it, it just is. It will not just increase every year. There is a natural limit. I think we're about thirty, thirty percent, thirty-five percent efficient in solar panel uh, panels. Um, what is the top side of that? Where could we get to with the existing technology? And have you heard of a new technology technology called peroxide, which I saw on a um, on a website? on a YouTube channel that was saying that they've got this new technology that's going to be way more efficient and it's just sprayed on. And it came from, I'm just going to find it now. It's from a web, from a YouTube channel called electric future, solar 3.0. This new technology could change everything. I must admit, I wasn't convinced by it. So let me uh, again, um, correct a, a, a minor point here, which is uh, when we were talking earlier about more, decreasing cost of solar technology, uh, we, we were not talking about the efficiency of any particular panel. So you might have a panel that is 14% efficient, but so cheap that it's worth deploying. Whereas you might have a panel that is 35% efficient, but contains so many expensive materials and it is so difficult to produce that it is nothing more than a lab curiosity. Yeah. And, um, and so there's, they're very important things. Like if you could make a robust 18 to 20% efficient solar panel 
with incredibly uh, you know cheap materials that require far less energy. Back to our initial conversation around energy return on energy invested, um, then that might be very viable and might be superior to uh, an esoteric 35% efficient solar cell that might be made in a lab. And um, my suspicion, without having read um, the the piece that you referenced, um, having been trained in the sciences, uh, you know, at the, at the graduate level and having once potentially pursued a career as as a professor. Um, the, or at least considered it. I wouldn't say that I pursued it. Um, we, there's a phrase that many of my scientists, friends, and in industry use, um, and it's called uh, "it works in universities." Right. And uh, professors are always on the hunt for research funding, which is totally normal. And um, professors are simultaneously often unaware of critical industrial constraints that make their interesting technology currently unviable. Um, but nothing drives the funding machine better than some high-profile articles in some prestigious journals or television spots. And again, nothing wrong with any of this. Um, we encourage the development of such technologies because, you know, the uh, but the process from invention to deployment is is actually what innovation means. And um, we are not currently invention limited to solve most of these problems. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. What what I was thinking was. The, the the current solar panels as they are with the current technology that we've got um putting aside any new materials or any other discoveries that there may be um i understand that there's an upper limit on how efficient they could be i know you weren't answering that question before you were talking about cost and that is a different issue but um just as a general point just just to hear it from an expert i i understood that it was around 30 to 35 percent at the moment and it i think we had a listener uh, one of our listeners a few uh could have been a year or so ago um, when we were talking about this and i was talking about the efficiency and, and they said something about there being an upper limit which is why i remembered this question i just wanted to ask yeah. you um sure it, it, so is there a natural upper limit on on the efficiency of the technology it, at the moment it depends on the on the manner in which you are harvesting the solar energy. So for traditional solar cells, there's the um, Shockley-Kessler limit, I believe, and it's somewhere around 29 to 33%. It depends uh, on how you use it. But if you go to um, you know, concentrated um, sunlight where you're using mirrors, you can get as high as, um, I believe it's in the mid-80s. I'd, I'd have to check. Um, and so it all depends on the manner in which you're using the technology. Um, but again, um, I would argue that um, efficiency is sort of a classic university um, parameter that people think if they just solve efficiency, they will, quote unquote, have a major breakthrough for industry. Yeah. And uh, I would argue that um, efficiency is a parameter and it matters, but it's almost never the determining parameter. And so, again, this is sort of a classic example of what uh, you would say is a misleading headline. So here's another classic example sort of from the chemistry space. Um, such and such catalyst is 5,000 times more efficient at converting um, CO2 into a useful chemical. Um, that headline might be literally true and almost assuredly utterly irrelevant. Um, and, um, and so I'm just sensitive to um, such proclamations, especially from academicians, without the concurrent knowledge of what it really takes to reduce to practice such inventions. And again, to invent something it's wholly different than to innovate, which is to take an invention and make it practical. 
And um, so, yes, there's upper limits. Depends on the form factor. Um, these are known and well calculated, um, but they're not determinative. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure the internal combustion engine is not very efficient at all, but it's what we've been using. Yeah. I mean, it gives yes. off so and much the heat. Carno efficiency, yeah, the Carnot efficiency of these engines are all well known and calculated. And, and the amount of technology that has gone into squeezing every last bit of efficiency out of things like internal combustion engine is, is truly a miracle. Mm. They've done marvelous jobs. Um, but the, the cap or the, the maximum efficiency is, is again, is a wonderful academic pursuit that we would highly encourage because one can never predict in advance which inventions enable others. Um, and so we're not, you know, we just, we find sometimes that the, um, the publicity arms of universities do uh, a disservice to the public by exaggerating the consequence of, of, of inventions within their laboratories as important as they might be. So Given what we've discussed so far, um, where do you th do you think that the I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please, you know, obviously answer the way you want to. Wh where do you think that the trajectory for the price of oil and natural gas will be over the coming years? And and if it is indeed upwards, um, how long do you think it will remain at this elevated state before efficiencies, other products, can come in and and bring it back down again? Well. Um high energy prices induce economic recessions and depressions. And so um, energy prices will continue to elevate until demand is destroyed. And then when demand is destroyed, we will enter into a recessionary cycle in the economy. And um, the long arc of business cycles will be uh, that the Federal Reserve and, and the central banks of the G7 countries have tried so hard to postpone, the reckoning will have to be, um, will have to be consumed. And so um, the level of underinvestment in the fossil fuel industry in the past four or five years for a variety of reasons, including political opposition and defunding campaigns, but also because of substantial capital destruction on the part of these companies, means that um, we will not be able to respond to price signals in a timely manner, and the price of energy will continue to rise until demand destruction has been achieved. Um, unfortunately, um, one of the ways in which demand will be destroyed is that people will starve. Um, and so it's sad, um, but it seems inevitable. Have we peaked in oil, you know, with the invasion of Russia and oil, um, you know, rent spiking above $130 a barrel? Uh, hard to say. Um, but the price of natural gas in Europe spiked to over $600 a barrel price equivalent. That's going to do enormous damage to the manufacturing base in Europe that will be felt for years. Um, ultimately, the manner in which the market, um, you know, rations limited energy supply is by paying, you know, distributing it to the to the people willing to pay the highest clearing price, and um, that's going to have the second order effect of of uh, crashing the economy. And we put a chart out on Twitter that sort of some people gave us some heat for because obviously correlation is not causation. But the last time oil spiked to somewhere around one hundred fifty dollars a barrel was. Uh, a, a few precious short months ahead of the global financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we would argue that those two things are not unrelated. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the economy was in real trouble. The Bank of England was holding interest rates high, would not bring them down. And they were almost, it felt very similar to what's going on now in the sense that inflation is going up, but consumers are being hit by high 
energy prices, it's that's in, in, in the inflationary numbers. So the Bank of England will want to raise interest rates to bring that inverted commas inflation down. But that's not a choice. You can't you can't just suddenly stop consuming energy and and uh, or unless you I suppose you can if you want to be cold in the winter. And so there, therefore, it's almost like it has to cause a recession because you're being hit on both sides. Yeah, the energy is life. <laughs> and um, the human endeavor is a constant, unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. And um, literally, the amount of energy we can waste dictates our standard of living. All humans want a higher standard of living. And um, therefore, uh, an energy crisis is a life crisis. It's an economic crisis. Um, and the, the, these are, again, back to the phrase we've perhaps used too often here. It's just, it's just dictated by the laws of physics. If I may just ask a couple of final questions with regard to sure. areas in the world, um, who do you think will suffer the most from this, from these high energy prices? Clearly, China is going to have a problem, um, but Europe also, also I mean, Europe and the EU will have a problem. But we've also got to think about the the poorer parts of the world as well, as you as you said, because you know it's an inconvenience to us, but people are going to starve. Yeah, so if it's superficially, you can look at import-export flows for things like agriculture and energy, and um, you can sort of look at heat maps. You know, uh, Peter Zihand, who is sort of a, a geopolitical strategist of, of significant fame here in the U.S. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of him, heard of him over there. Um, has put out a series of books that are pretty provocative vis-a-vis um, geopolitical, the geopolitical consequence of the U.S. Navy essentially securing global trade since the end of World War II and how that was actually a, a uh, unusual um, set of circumstances in the, in the sort of long arc of human history and that that is now breaking down. And, and this is why we're seeing things like, you know, uh, Chinese agitation over Taiwan and, and Russia's invasion over the Ukraine. And so if you look at the countries that have the, the perfect example is, is Sri Lanka, right? So they, they have, um, weak domestic currency and significant import needs. And um, they're now experiencing a bout of hyperinflation. And um, when you have a worthless currency and you need to import critical goods, uh, nobody takes that currency and, and imports stop. Um, I mentioned earlier, uh, we saw, we were seeing riots in Peru um, overnight. And um, that one is particularly important for the global economy in the sense that Peru, uh, Peru produces an enormous amount of copper um, that the world needs, for example, to electrify its vehicles. These things are all interconnected, you see. Um, there's just no escaping it. And so um, the countries that will be most okay um, are certainly the U.S. and Canada because of the abundance that we have domestically um, and the financial wherewithal to pay the market clearing price, which will only further exacerbate the exportation of said inflation to countries that can't afford it. The places that you're going to see significant hotspots include um, obviously Africa and South America and parts of Southeast Asia that are particularly vulnerable. I think Europe will be fine in a sense that uh, the euro and the pound are sort of perhaps not the world reserve currency. They are reserve currencies and um, you can print them. And Have you they, seen the state of our politicians though? Yes, of course. I mean, I, I, I see your politicians and I raise you ours. <laughs> um, so I, we, we are we are not immune to such things uh, over here, but um, by and large, um, for example, in the U.S., farmers will be bailed out, economically disadvantaged will be given stimulus, and people will be fed. 
uh, when we wrote the piece, uh, Farmers on the Brink, it's a very fascinating response to that piece, which I'm sure you guys will appreciate. Um, American readers assumed we were being alarmist because they thought we were calling for food shortages in the US, and the piece said no such thing. And um, international farmers um, fill their inbox with thanks for, for highlighting the nature of the problem. And in the piece itself, we literally say, the people who will starve because of this are on the other side of the world, and therefore out of sight, and therefore, you know, the proximity effect of ethics that we talked about earlier will yeah. make this much more palatable to the American consumer. But to the American reader, they thought we were calling for food shortages in the U.S. and we did no such thing. The farmers on the brink, we, we, we interviewed U.S. farmers to get a sense for where all the critical inputs in the farming were going. And then we deduced that there would be famine around the world. The people around the world thanked us for writing it. And the people in the U.S. complained that we were being too alarmist. Uh, which is a very interesting way to, to read this, the same piece. You know? um, so I do think, ultimately, um, the clearing price will be discovered in the U.S., Canada, Western Europe, and the rest of the world who are bidding for global commodities will either have to pay that price or go without. And unfortunately, many of them will go without, and it will be a tragedy of epic proportions that is only made worse by how preventable it was. I was talking to a company in September last year about the the price of wheat and I, I'm a technical analyst which means that I, I look at price patterns and um, it tells me ahead of potentially uh, what's going to happen because I, I can see demand building up in something before we get the story and you, you, you alluded to that at the top of the show with you know who might have known that this was all going to go off in, in um, Ukraine and this uh, this particular buyer of wheat was saying that the price was way too high and could not possibly go higher, and and I all, all I could offer because I know nothing about the wheat market other than it looked technically like there was a lot of buying going on, and it was going to continue higher. Now at that price that we were talking about was around six hundred and ninety dollars. Um, it subsequently traded at a spike high of one thousand. Three hundred and forty-three dollars. It's so double what it was at the high that he was, thought was untenable. Exactly. Uh, he was saying that was eye-wateringly high, and was and mm. I could tell that that any you know when somebody just doesn't want something to happen because you know how badly it's going to affect their business. Mm. And this is one of the things about trying to predict markets. You've got to be as objective as possible, and. When you know so much about the market, he must know, must have known why it was so expensive and and how. It, I mean, it was a relative high, but it wasn't that high. Um, but again, this speaks to if energy prices goes up, goes up, everything goes up. Everything has to go up because the transportation cost of everything, the production goes. You you put it very eloquently with energy is life, and that's absolutely right. And now, of course, there are other reasons why wheat prices have gone up. Um, because of the, the role that Ukraine play, plays in the production of food and fertilizer. Um, but it just goes to show somebody knew something. That's why that was going on. And we got the result, um, you know, soon, soon afterwards. Uh, we could see why people were hedging and, and the prices were going up so aggressively. Yes. And in the piece we wrote, Farmers on the Brink, we walked the readers through um, all of the key inputs into farming. And so I, if you don't mind, I'll summarize them here quickly. Please do. Um, yeah, no, that'd be fantastic. The, 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 the price of fertilizer has more than tripled um, since 2020. And um, for the reasons you have, we've alluded to, and Belarus, for example, is the third largest supplier of potash in the world. And 
um, you know, China halted the uh, exports of phosphates and nitrogen basically comes from ammonia, which comes from natural gas. Um, the next thing you need is uh, herbicides and fungicides and, and the most heavily used herbicide in the world, which controls weeds, which is critical to the, you know, uh, yield of, of an acre or a hectare as it may be. Um, uh, Roundup, which was sort of invented by Monsanto and is now, um, is now sort of uh, the, owned by Bayer. Um, glyphosate is the molecule, and it's basically a sophisticated fertilizer, and its price has has mooned four or five x, um, which has caused the price of all other herbicide replacements to go up as well. Diesel fuel, uh, you know, especially um, in because Russia, you know, provides both finished diesel and the semi-processed oil precursors that refiners in Europe use to make diesel. The price of diesel has uh, uh, has has gone to unthinkable levels. Um, the equipment that you need to farm, you know, the, the, the same chip crisis that has impacted the automotive industry um, has bled into the uh, farmer machinery supply industry. And that's only going to be made worse by the war in Ukraine because neon is needed for the lasers in the chip fabrication shops. And I think Ukraine makes something like 70% of the world's neon supply. Um, labor shortage in the US, we have a, a massive chasm between the number of open positions and the number of unemployed people seeking work. Um, and then um, on top of all that, we ended it with a bit of a, a propane issue. You know, the U.S. is exiting the winter with the lowest levels of propane in many, many years, and propane is used for grain drying. Um, and so, you know, when you add it all up, everywhere you look, that's why we wrote the piece, Farmers on the Brink. Um, and it's not U.S. farmers on the brink. It's the marginal farmer around the world um, that is going to impact global supplies that is on the brink because they can't afford to pay these prices. And so what will they do? They will use less fertilizer. They will use less herbicide and deal with the consequence next year when the weeds are fully out of control. Which um, means there's less food next year. Exactly. So this is sort of compounding over time. And um, one of the things we pride ourselves at Doomberg is being early to recognizing such patterns. Um, and nobody bats a thousand, as they say in baseball talk. Uh, we've gotten some things wrong, for sure, but we've got a lot of things right, and we're proud of our track record. And um, we made that call at the end of March that we we're going to see a global famine. And as I said earlier, um, you know, we ended the piece with... Um, it's one of those things you don't want yeah, to be right about. Yeah, never have we been more certain in our beliefs while fervently wishing that we were wrong. A global famine is no joke, and correctly forecasting one would bring no joy. That's how we mm. ended the piece. Um, and that's legitimately how we feel as sort of empathetic, human-centric people. There's a TV show on at the moment... Um, series called Clarkson's Farm, uh, Jeremy Clarkson of the Grand Tour and, and uh, Top Gear fame, who took over the running of the farm in the UK. And although it was a comedy, it was supposed to be comedy entertainment, um, there was actually a serious point to him doing this. And it, he highlighted in one series much more than I think has ever been done by the government to highlight the problems that the, these farmers go through. It is a excruciatingly hard job you're managing so many different forces and you are at the whim of the weather you're at the whim of commodity prices and you're at the whim of absolutely ridiculous uh government red tape and it's no wonder that they struggle so much and there's just something that is so important to us is just completely it seems neglected or not thought about correctly and it's, again, yeah. just one of those things that you just wonder why this is not being taken in hand and they're not being helped because it's so important. Food 
um, our food pipelines are of national you know importance. It's a security risk. Yes, and um, I agree wholeheartedly with what you said. It is an incredibly challenging industry. And again, the further away from it that we become, the easier it is to forget how uh, we're always one harvest away from a calamity, you know? Um, we in the, in the piece that we wrote back in October called Starvation Diet, which was sort of our first ringing of the alarmist bell that we were going to have significant food problems, we kind of took a dig at um, Larry Fink, who is the uh, CEO of, um, uh, of BlackRock and who has done the most to restrict the financial support for the traditional fossil fuels industry, let's say. Um, he would deny that applic- uh, accusation, of course. Um, well, you, you've touched on this. You mentioned farmers on the brink, and I was struck yeah. by the quote that you begin the piece with, which is from Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah. Farming looks mighty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, we closed uh, the related piece, Starvation Diet, which is you can find back in October with um, with a little dig at Larry Fink again. And, um, and we say, through a perversion of financial engineering and scientific illiteracy, We've delegated the fate of humanity to a man whose claim on this power derives from his ability to vacuum up pension fund allocations. Mm. Um, and then we close it with um, the caviar, Kobe beef, and white albatrosses at Fink's cocktail parties will undoubtedly continue to flow, but he would be wise to keep a keen eye on the wait staff. Somehow, mm. I doubt he is a good tipper. <laughs> <laughs> Meow. That was a little catty. <laughs> a little catty for a chicken. Um, uh, all, all, all animal life is is represented here. So, um, I think that's a good a good point for us. To, oh, just just before we go to media picks, one final question: Have you heard of Jim Rogers uh, of the Quantum Fund fame? Yeah, yeah, sure. and because he's been warning about this this problem that we have now for a very long time, and by a very long time, I mean probably at least 12 years, possibly 14 years. Mm-hmm. And I just think, yes. I yeah. just think you, know, you know, he spent a lot of time talking about how money printing would lead to the gold price going up and um, the, the farmers are just underrepresented and the we will have a food shortage problem. He's been saying it for a very long time and it's just incredible that what he's, what he's saying is coming, coming true. So... Um, that there is clearly the, the the ability to to foresee this problem if he was foreseeing but, it. But nobody, but nobody ever listens. Well, yeah, I guess it was as we were saying before. The, the governments just tend to look at short term problems and um, and hand them over, and that that again is seems to be the way of it. And it's only until um, I was watching the Crown last night, uh, the beginning of of that, when um, Winston Churchill was. Uh, had the crisis of the burning of the the the, the coal and the the, the the fog over London and just didn't want to do anything about it, um, and it wasn't until his your close friend was killed by not being able to see, because people couldn't see where they were going literally mm. that um, the Clean Air Act was made, and it was because people weren't thinking long term about the problems they were causing. But um, but on that note. Um, let's talk about media picks. So, Tim, what have, what have you got for us this week? 
So I'm going to lighten the mood now with uh, a Netflix documentary, Jimmy Savile, a British horror story. <laughs> yeah, I've started watching that. It's yeah, which I watched. <laughs> well yesterday. done, Tim, for raising the mood there. That's just brilliant. <laughs> so I don't know if Doomberg will be familiar with Jimmy Savile, but for people who who, who weren't who aren't British or weren't didn't experience the the seventies and the eighties, Jimmy Savile was a, a DJ. Um, and he, he, he hosted a very popular show called Jim will fix it in the seventies and eighties. Um, I remember watching Jim will fix it as a child and it was, uh, extremely enjoyable. He, basically he was a sort of self-styled father Christmas slash Messiah figure who would grant your wish. Did you write in? If, if, That's what I want to know. I, I don't think I wrote in. No. I, I easily could have done. I don't think I did. I think I might have done. I can't remember. That, I th- thank I think God I, want- I didn't. I think I wanted thank, to. There was definitely thank stuff. Thank God I, I would- didn't, but, yeah. I, but I easily could have done. But basically, kids would write in and say, can you fix it for me to fly or you know, do the X, Y, or Z? And, and a few James people would Bond's be picked car out. Or something. Yeah. Exactly. All these kind of stunts, PR stunts mostly. Anyhow, um, it, it later... Uh, it later transpired that Jimmy Savile was one of the country's most notorious uh, paedophiles. And the documentary is it's a two-parter. It's harrowing to watch, particularly if you actually grew up with, you know, thinking this guy was, was on the level. What's most alarming about the documentary is that when you see the footage throughout, fairly consistently throughout probably three decades or more, he gave little hints that something wasn't quite right, but that was only sort of obvious in hindsight. Um, the only reason I made firstly, I think it's an extraordinarily well done documentary covering mm-hmm. obviously very sensitive material. But the reason I, I, I cite it is because I fear that we are going to be in for revelations, m- many more revelations along the same line. So the reason I would highlight it is I think people should, get a, a sense of what's the scale of what this problem may be to come because I think it's this only the tip of the iceberg it's quite the pick-me-upper yeah yeah thanks for that Tim I feel <laughs> so much better actually <laughs> so <laughs> no I in addition watching... to the global apocalypse we have that to look forward to as well I mean what I, I, if it's any consolation our shows are normally more upbeat than this so it's, <laughs> you've caught us on a you've caught us on a low end I, as I like to say it's not called Doomberg for nothing huh? yeah <laughs> So, um, so what does a cute little follow that? Well, what does a cute little green bird, green bird, do yeah. to to relax? Uh, I have a, a a more sort of standard and perhaps less um, doomy pick for my my media. Well, maybe pick. maybe um, it's a, maybe it's a Disney film. Uh, no, it's um, but I, I've I've reintroduced myself to the to the game of kings. I, I'm a, I was a chess player as a child, and oh, then brilliant. Sort of gave it up as an adult. And I have been consuming this this. There's a Croatian guy on YouTube, um, Antonio Radic, and um, he's sort of a, a, a decent chess player, not, not, a, not an international master or grandmaster, but he has a fabulous YouTube channel. I'm not sure I pronounce it correctly. Agad Matters Chess Channel. Um, thousands of videos, and he just has these perfect little 12 to 50 minute videos where he, he sort of walks the viewer through current important games like Magnus Carlsen or um, you know the World Chess Championship or various prestigious terms, but also a healthy mix of historically important or interesting or beautiful games. And um, I, I find myself um, cracking a little smile when I see in my, uh, subscrip- my subscription notifications that he's put out a new video. He publishes every day, at least one video a day. And uh, I've been quite enjoying going through his archive. Um, it would be impossible to get through all of it, but I, if you're interested in chess, 
Uh, he has something like 1.2 million subscribers. He's a real YouTube phenomenon, and, and he's a really charismatic guy. Very, very simple and consistent production quality, and just a pleasure to watch. And so um, that's my pick. Um, Fantastic. As a palate cle- uh, as a palate cleanser. Yeah, uh, no, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Uh, I, I, that reminds me of a. If I may recycle one of my media picks, there is a documentary about Magnus Carlsen, and it's fabulous. So I think if you enjoy chess, you should watch that i can't remember what it's called i'll have to search I'll look it up yeah yeah it's a brilliant documentary but there's also in that vein a documentary called AlphaGo, and it's man against machine because of ai technology and how it's advanced the game of go was considered to be beyond the the realms of a computer technology to be able to beat a man but ai got to the point has got to the point where it is now possible you know the self-learning machines and it's a David and Goliath story of, of banks of computers trying to beat this one man at AlphaGo. And it's just absolutely fabulous. It should be free to watch on YouTube. It was the last time I looked. But if you like chess and you like the idea of chess, you'll, you'll appreciate the battle that's, that's going on in that documentary, which is just fantastic fantastic so i'll put that one out as my one for this the magnus week. carlson one and there's a documentary called magnus from 2016 could it be that one it could be yeah it could that's be that one yeah, yeah that's yeah. probably it's brilliant absolutely brilliant the way he, he learned chess he is, is just truly a, a phenomenon he, yeah. he is really incredible for those that aren't familiar magnus carlson is the current world champion and um was a, a super prodigy as a child and and um is on a mission right now to achieve the unthinkable chess rating of 2900 in classic format and um Time will tell if he achieves it, uh, but just to sort of benchmark you, computers now are regularly playing at 3,500 or 3,600 type levels, and um, it would be a, a minor miracle if if Carlson could achieve even a mere draw once against one of these amazing uh, chess engines. But no, I love that. That's brilliant. Now, Doomberg, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. It's been absolutely amazing. It's been so insightful. If people want to get hold of you, get hold of your research, and um, find you on Twitter, uh, how do they do that? Where are your handles? Yeah, so on Twitter, we are at Doomberg T. So take the word Doomberg and put the letter T as in team on the end of it. Somebody's squatting on Doomberg, unfortunately, uh, oh, as, I thought as it, it was, happens. I thought um, it was Doomberg T for Twitter. So Do- Doomberg uh, T, okay. Um, and then our most important uh, work is published uh, at doomberg.substack.com. And um, we just opened our paywall to subscribers. We were previously a free newsletter. We've published over 100 articles uh, on doomberg.substack.com. We will continue to be free for the month of April, but come uh, May 1st, we will be a paid newsletter only. Um, If you're interested in following our work, um, we would encourage you to be a subscriber. We've priced uh, our primary tier that contains all of our articles quite, um, quite competitively. We also have a pro tier for institutional slash high net worth investors who might want a bit more background information and access to the Doomberg team, but you can find all the details by going to doomberg.substack.com. And gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, and happy to come back anytime you're willing to have me. It's been a pleasure to have you, Doomberg. Yeah, I second that. Thank you so much. And we look forward to speaking to you in the future and wish you all the best with your Substack and um, your continued growth on Twitter. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.